Greetings, I'm Austin Egbert, Director of Mind Matters News. You're listening to another BingeCast, where multiple episodes are combined into a single program. This week, we talk with the grandfather of virtual reality, Dr. Thomas Furness, about the origins of virtual reality and the many technologies and innovations that arose from its development. Enjoy. Welcome to Mind Matters News, where artificial and natural intelligence meet head on. Here's your host, Robert J. Marks. GPS and the internet were both founded by the United States military in their think tanks. The military also had a major role in the development of virtual reality. We are fortunate to have with us today the man that pioneered virtual reality during his military service to the United States. Our guest, Dr. Thomas Furness, has been dubbed the grandfather of virtual reality. I first met Dr. Furness at the University of Washington, where, with our mutual friend, Dr. Tom Cadell, who was then at Boeing, uh, we put together the first technically serious conference on virtual reality. This was a long time ago, back in 1993. Dr. Furness, of course, was the general chair, but that was over 35 years ago. The conference got great reviews and was standing room only, and it launched, it really was the launching pad for serious interest outside of science fiction, Comic-Con sort of type gatherings for interest in virtual reality and other human interface technology. Lots has happened since then, and Dr. Furness has been right there in the development. Dr. Thomas Furness is professor at the University of Washington in Seattle, where I used to hang my hat. He is a professor in the Department of Industrial and Systems Engineering and the founder of the Human Interface Technology Lab at the University of Washington. He has sister labs, HIT labs, Human Interface Technology Labs, at the University of Canterbury and the University of Tasmania. His technology has started 27 companies, two are currently traded on NASDAQ, and are worth like $12 billion, and uh, we're going to ask him if some of that stuck to him. hope so. Uh, I, I think very prestigiously, he recently received the IEEE Virtual Reality Career Award for his lifetime contributions to virtual reality and augmented reality. And if you don't know IEEE, it's the largest professional society in the world. It's the Institute of Electrical and Electronic Engineers, and it has over, uh, gosh, 400,000 members. And Dr. Finesse is also a fellow of the IEEE. Okay, I'm out of breath, uh, Tom. Uh, Welcome. It's good to talk to you. Oh, Bob, it's so good to to hear your voice again after all these years. Um, We've both been on uh, uh, some amazing journeys, and uh, I'm just uh, happy that we can uh, get together again after our conference together in 1993. It was a long time ago. Hey, Uh let's go back to the beginning. This is way before we met, and you were with the Air Force. You were first a commissioned officer with the Air Force, and there you had um, kind of a, a, a command from somebody to develop virtual reality in what sense? Walk us through the history of that. You bet. Well, uh, it's interesting, the journey that I've taken. Um, I graduated from Duke University in electrical engineering in 1966 and was uh, the day of my graduation, I was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Air Force and assigned to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio. And I didn't know what to expect. I knew that I had to spend four years during the military. This is sort of the Vietnam War period. And I felt if I have to go to the war, it'd be best to go in the Air Force rather than any of the other services. 
So and when I did show up for uh, to begin my duty assignment at Wright-Patterson, I was assigned to uh, basically do whatever I wanted to do. <laughs> this was, yeah, this was an amazing program. They call it the LEAP program, which is a Lieutenant's Education Application Program, which meant that I could go work anywhere I wanted to at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Now, Such a deal. Oh, wow. What a deal. Yeah, I mean, this was, this was like the hog heaven. I mean, it's uh, for an engineer. I mean, there was the, you know, all of these laboratories. Uh, this is where they developed the advanced aircraft. This was um, uh, where they did flight testing and all of that. And, and of course, what I'd wanted to do bef- uh, before joining the Air Force is I wanted to be an astronaut because I wanted to go into space. I wanted to go to the moon, all those kinds of things. Uh, but it turns out my eyes kept me out of the, the doing that in the Air Force Academy. And so I ended up um, at Wright-Patterson. And, uh, but then this thing happened. And so what I decided to do um, with advice from the, the personnel office is to pick maybe three jobs I'd work in for three months at a, uh, or four months at a time. And then at the end, pick a job that I wanted to do for the longer term. And um, so I did, uh, I, I, picked these jobs, one of which was in flight test, which was um, was really fun because I was flying in the fighters. I was flying in the Phantoms, F-4s. So you, you were a pilot then? I was a flight test engineer. I see. Okay. I was sitting in a back seat. Uh, I had to suit up. I had to put, you know, I sit in an ejection seat and parachutes and, you know, G-suits and all this kind of stuff, just like the pilots. Uh, but my job was actually running the test instrumentation. And uh, while the pilot was flying the airplane, but half the time the pilot said, ah, you take it. And so I was flying the airplane, you know, while he was eating bananas or something like that. I mean, <laughs> so uh, it was, yeah, we were boring holes through the sky. We were going, uh, you know, near the mock and beyond the mock and uh, testing this equipment, uh, flying at low altitude, flying at high altitude, going straight up, going straight down. It was really fun. I got to ask you, Tom, does anything special happen when you go faster in the speed of sound? Well, not really. It, it, uh, when you're in this side, you just, uh, uh, there may be a little bit of buffeting that you feel, but other than that, it's no, no big deal when you're on the inside. You don't really notice it that too much. I see. Okay. So, so what happened in, uh, in the process of doing this, I, I found out that, you know, to spend those few hours in the air, you had to spend a lot of time on the ground in preparation, uh, as well as sitting on your hands a lot. Uh, while the aircraft was being prepared and things like that. And I decided, you know, I would really rather be working on building these interfaces and these cockpits and things like that. Yeah, I'll fly too, but that's fun. But still, I'm, you know, I'm an engineer. I want to build stuff. And so um, I decided to go back to one of the jobs I had during this first year period, which was basically developing Vance cockpits. And this, again, this is a, during the Vietnam War period. We had some really tough problems. We're trying to decide how we could fly at night uh, without being seen and uh, find uh, the uh, enemy on the ground using uh, sensors. We had low-level television, forward-looking infrared sensors that let us see at night. And there were just a whole bunch of problems in terms of also air-to-air combat and things like that. And it sort of boils down to, I guess, into three sets of problems. One was, um, and these were all the ones that I was dealing with as a uh, running this lab at uh, my, the lab that they, they set me up to do. I actually said, build a lab that works on this stuff. So um, I did. Here's a brand new second lieutenant just out of, uh, you know, as an undergraduate. And um, so I started putting together these, um, uh, 
these ways to um, develop interfaces, better interfaces for cockpits. So one of the problems we're trying to solve is, um, is actually aiming things. As it turns out, uh, the way that uh, these uh, aircraft were built, in order to aim the weapon systems of the aircraft or to aim sensors and things like that, you had to aim the whole airplane. And so you use these head-up displays to do that. But it meant moving this amazing mass, this high-energy mass around to aim doing that. And it was, it was difficult to do. Um, and, and when, in fact, you could actually see what you wanted to do, you could actually see the, the targets. But in order to get those into the machine, you had to physically fly the machine to aim it. And I decided, well, why isn't just looking at it good enough? Because we, we could probably measure where you're looking. And uh, so that's what I started working on. The idea of why don't we track the pilot's helmet, the helmet position. And what we do is project a infinite infinity collimated reticle. Okay, okay. You have to back up a second. An infinite uh, something, something. What is that? Right. Okay. Well, what this is, is it's like a gun sight paper, but it appears in the distance. It's not like it's in front of you. It's out in the distance. And that's what we call infinity collimation. I see. Yes. That means the light rays optically are fixed. So they appear to be coming a long way away at what we call optical infinity, which is sort of beyond uh, 30 feet or 50 feet. That's when the light rays sort of are so far away, they appear to be parallel. So we had this little, uh, uh, what is a little mirror system on located on the front of the helmet that you'd look through and uh, you'd see this little uh, pipper, what we call a pipper or gun sight, projected out in space. And all you do is move it around with your head and put it over the target or the, the designate something that you were interested in. And then what we would do is aligned with that pipper in, uh, in sort of the line of sight of the helmet, we had two photodiodes on each side of the helmet. And uh, what we do is interrogate those photodiodes, their infrared sensors, with this fanning light that would sweep through the cockpit. And uh, every time uh, the, the photodiode picked up a signal, we would take the timing of that signal, basically the, the timing of the, the sweeping of the fan, and we would basically triangulate on those four photodiodes on the helmet. And then we would draw a vector through those and resolve that vector into azimuth and elevation angles relative to the aircraft. So wherever the line of sight of that pipper was, then the pilot was where the aircraft knew that line of sight. And then we could use that to aim sensors, infrared uh, trackers and missiles. We could use it to, to designate something on the ground to our navigation system and determine the coordinates of that. Uh, and we could also aim um, uh, imaging sensors, low-out level television and 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 forward-looking bread, things like that. So we were able to solve the tracking problem. And it was, it was sort of the necessity, uh, you know, invention is, uh, comes from uh, necessity. Yes. The mother uh, <laughs> of invention is necessity, right? Yes. And so it was trying to solve a problem of how do you aim the aircraft that we started doing this head tracking stuff. And then it was clear that, okay, so you've done that, but then you have this problem of how in the world do you communicate the images from the sensor, let's say an imaging sensor that's looking in, into darkness, uh, how do you display that to the pilot when in fact you had no space in the cockpit to do that? So uh, we were trying to figure out how, how would you cut a hole in this cockpit big enough to make a display that was big enough that you could actually represent those pixels to the pilot so they could see the information. 
Yes. And this was very expensive and difficult to do because cockpits, fighter cockpits, especially the most ex- uh, expensive real estate on the earth a per square inch. <laughs> wow. Because if you start moving things around, it costs a fortune uh-huh. to do that. And there just wasn't enough room. Already, we had, you know, um, 300 switches, 75 displays, 11 switches on the control stick, and nine switches on the throttle uh, in this cockpit. And you're trying to manage all of that. I'll get to that a little bit later. But uh, so we said, well, well, why don't we, instead of trying to create a real image display, where you're actually looking at the face of a, a cathode ray tube or some kind of display device, why don't we make it a virtual image? And the virtual image is something that you see in space that doesn't really exist there. For example, the simplest uh, example of this is really a, the mirror in your bathroom. You stand in front of the, your mirror in the bathroom, you see yourself, you know, yeah. but that's not really you. You just appear to be there. You're not really there. And that is a, a virtual image of you. And if we could use some mirrors and some what we call combiners, um, beam combiners, we could actually take a really small picture, like from a miniature cathode ray tube, it may be the size of a quarter. We could draw a picture on that. Then we can magnify and collimate it, meaning make it appear in the distance and to project it into the eye. So you get a huge screen, maybe a 30 inch screen, that doesn't take up any cockpit space. Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is that's going to block your views of other things. Well, you see through it. What you do is you see the outside world through this combiner. And uh, so that you can see the virtual world, the virtual uh, scene superimposed on top of the real scene, just like we're doing with with head-up displays. I see. So this is, I, I always think of driving at night and I put something on my dashboard and it, ref, it reflects in my windshield and it looks like it's just floating there. So that's the sort of thing you see. It is. And you see this all the time. We see these kinds of things, you know, especially at night, uh, reflections of our dashboard into the, our, our uh, windows and things like that. Mm-hmm. So the beauty of this is that it really didn't have to take up any space in the cockpit. So there wasn't a major overhauling of the, um, the cockpit instruments and things like that. This was something that was just attached to the helmet. And it had the additional advantage is it moved around. So you had this big picture projected to you that moved wherever you moved your head, of course. Now, the exciting thing happened when we, you know, we found that we could actually see those, um, those uh, pixels that came from the, the infrared sensors and the low-light level television sensors. We could actually see them now. Wow. But then we decided, well, wait a minute now. If we combine this head tracking thing with this head helmet-mounted display thing, now we had basically an aperture, a big screen that we could move around, and we always knew where it was. So what that meant is that we could take our head position and move those sensors around outside the cockpit and then display a picture in that same angle. And it was just like cutting a hole in the whole airplane and being able to see at night. Sort of like having a picture window, uh, being able to see through see at night. And so this became really the first virtual reality system where we could basically take the place of the of, of, see, of the scene through the cockpit. Now, after that, we said, well, wait a minute, why can't we put all the instruments up there? And not only that, we could stabilize them in space. 
In other words, we could have things that moved with the head, but things that seemed to uh, stay um, stabilized with the cockpit. Therefore, we could take the whole cockpit and project that as, as a virtual image in addition to what we were getting from our sensors. And so this became evolved over years. And I, I was working on this, you know, continuously from 1966. Uh, on, in the process of getting there, we were building better and better head tracking systems, better and better displays. We were using miniature cathode ray tubes to begin with. Nice thing about cathode ray tubes is the electrons are really small. <laughs> and, you know, and you could scan a lot of these babies on, uh, on a, 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 a faceplate. That high luminance. I see. The only problem is that uh, is that you have to have an accelerating potential on that, so you have 15 kilovolts sitting on the side of your head, mm-hmm. you know, with uh, in order to get that image. So when liquid crystal displays came along and 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 OLEDs and things like that, that that changed everything. But but we were still using miniature cathode ray tubes at the beginning. So we continued to develop the displays, the tracking systems, and the computers that would actually generate these uh, cockpit instruments. And um, finally, um, I convinced the Air Force to give me enough money to build this so-called VCAS system. Say again, a VCAS? VCAS is called VCAS, Visually Coupled Airborne System Simulator. Because what I wanted to do is simulate this idea of a virtual cockpit, the whole cockpit being a virtual image, three-dimensional virtual image, Uh um, um, on the ground before we took it into the air to test it. And... uh, so the uh, the VCAS, uh, we built this, started building it in 1977. And the whole idea is to create a panoramic display. We had we had an instantaneous field of view of 120 degrees by uh, by 80 degrees. And uh, we had was a stereographic. We had a 16-bit tracking system, electromagnetic tracking system, the, the measure where that was. We had uh, speech input. We had eye tracking. Uh, and even uh, we're working on uh, tactile displays. So this, this we we switched this on in 1981. We had uh, I think it was eight Vax computers to run this thing, and um, uh, and two evidence solar and picture systems. One to draw the left eye, one to draw the right eye. Okay. Yes. And this is the simulator on the ground. And we generate uh, the uh, sort of the outside world. We generate other adversaries in that outside world as well as our virtual cockpit. And this was all, you know, vector graphic type stuff at the time, which meant there were lines. You know, there wasn't a, a continuous picture, sort of a, a filled-in raster picture, but uh, but it worked. And um, and so this, we, we were working with this and found some amazing things about the power of virtual reality. And this launched another project that was uh, what we call a super cockpit. And the super cockpit, I proposed this as part of a, a, an exercise we did at the Pentagon called uh, uh, Air Force Forecast 2. And, um, and this is one of the two projects that got funded out of that. And this was to build basically a cockpit the pilot wears. And uh, we started uh, working on this in, um, uh, in the mid um, mid eighties, uh, based upon what I was doing in the uh, earlier work. And, uh, it was, um, to do all the things I mentioned before, but also have tactile displays and to have artificial intelligence built into it. And you'd have R2D2 
in the, in the cockpit okay. uh, to help you with things. It would organize and portray information. You had a circumambience of information with uh, you know, a panoramic scene, and you could see through it in the daytime, and at night it sort of took the place of the outside world. Let me ask you a, a couple of clarifying things. You say tactile display. Usually I associate yeah. that with kind of feeling and things of that yes. sort. So what, what, what sort of tactile display did you use? Okay, well, the of course, the now that we have this virtual image, how do you interact with the virtual image? Mm-hmm. Now, you could look at it. You could look at various symbols and, and, and give a verbal command, say select. And uh, you'd look at a switch and just say select. But we also wanted to have a different way of, of interacting. And that was to be able to do this with your hands. So we figure out a way to track the hands, the hand position and finger position. And then uh, as you would reach into a particular volume space in the cockpit, a switch panel would window in, right? It would appear in that location. And then the whole idea is to reach out and touch a switch to activate it. Um, But you need to have feedback. And so one of the feedbacks was really uh, a sound. You'd hear that switch clicking with binaural sound. By this time, we're using three-dimensional sound, binaural sound. We're using individual earprints of the pilot so that you're basically mapping the sound so it's true 3D sound and not just stereophonic sound, it's 3D sound. So you hear things in 360 degrees around you. Wow. And so you'd hear that switch click in that direction. And then you would have in the gloves, we'd have tactors that actually would stimulate the fingers. And so you'd feel a little pressure in your finger when you touch that display. Uh-huh. even though it's not really there, but it appears to be there. So when you get this tactile feedback, you know that you'd activated that switch. You got the sound that it clicked and things like that. You take your hand away and the switch, pa- switch panel disappears because it's just getting in the way otherwise. Understood, yeah. So this was the notion of this super cockpit, and the whole idea was we were going to develop this uh, and test it to be an airborne system. I mean, this was not a sim. We're using a simulator to engineer it, but it was eventually going to be a real cockpit in an airplane. Now, this was this, this was actually a cockpit that was worn by the pilot, you said. Basically, yeah. I mean, you're in a real cockpit, uh, but you plug into this, and now all what you see, uh, you have standby instruments in the cockpit. What you see is this virtual projection. Yes. Three, you know, in 3D and, and surrounds you. Okay, and we'd have it, we take information from the outside world, we'll project it in there in terms of where you're located, the navigation information, uh, where the uh, friendly aircraft are, where the enemy aircraft are, where the ground surface to air missile batteries are. All of this you'd see in this grand gestalt, this picture that surrounds you. Now I've seen I've seen flight simulations, Tom, where they were from the outside. It actually tumbles as you do things. Are you there yet, or is that coming? Tumbles meaning physically yeah, moving? Yeah, yes. You're, you're, you're in this little ball, and this ball kind of tips and does different things. Yeah. That's a large amplitude Lamar's there at the Applied Dynamics Lab at Wright-Patterson Air Force. Base. Okay. Yeah, that's one of them, certainly. But yes, we were, we were actually testing some of these things in real aircraft. So it was, it was happening. But let me tell you a little story um, that goes along with this. Uh, so here we were um, uh, developing this kind of concept, the, the virtual cockpit, the super cockpit. Uh, we're using our Darth Vader simulator, this so-called VCAS. 
And we decided, you know, now's the time for us to um, bring in the test pilots. And these are the Air, Air Force finest pilots, you know, from Edwards Air Force Base and other places. And, and uh, we wanted them to take a look at it and see what they thought. And they knew that it was going to be something pretty far out that they'd never seen before. But they didn't realize how far out this was going to be. And so they, they came into my lab and, and uh, over to the, the simulator, the cockpit simulator, and they saw this huge helmet hanging above the cockpit. I mean, this thing weighed about 10 pounds at the time, but it was just the simulator uh, of these things. It had all kinds of bells and whistles built in. So this was the equivalent of today's headset, virtual reality headset. Yes, okay. it was. And uh, it gave us a wide field of view. It had these miniature cathode ray tubes uh, built in and all the tracking stuff and things like that. And we had this negator spring assembly that would actually support the weight of the helmet. It wouldn't change the momentum, you know, the, the angular momentum of the headset when you're moving it around. But nevertheless, it, uh, uh, so, so the first reaction when these uh, pilots came in and they saw this helmet, they, they pointed at the helmet and they pointed to me and said, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> and I said, wait, guys, understand that this is just a simulator for us to test out, you know, what, the, what it should look like and what, uh, how it should function. But here's what the airborne version is going to look like. And I showed them this new helmet that had actually been done. This was with a project we'd, we had with um, McDonnell Douglas and uh, Kaiser Aerospace, and uh, where the helmet was actually designed by Lucasfilms. Really? That so we'd hired the industrial design guys from Lucasfilms when they, after they did the first Star Wars. And we said, we want you to make us a sexy looking helmet. Okay. And uh, because, you know, it's back to, you know, pilots, uh, they have to look good. You know? Well, they're, <laughs> no, they're known for their big egos. You know? That's right. I mean, they have big watches and, and yeah. things like that. So, yes. um, so that was part of our, our uh, but we, you know, we knew we, there were some other requirements of this that we had to put into it. So, uh, so they did, they came back with a bunch of different designs and, and so some of them are really pretty cool. And so we had some of them built. And uh, so I hand this to this flight pilot. I said, okay, this is what your airborne version is going to look like. This is what you're going to wear when you're flying the airplane. And it was blue sky and had lightning bolts painted on the side of it. And, and, <laughs> and, they, and so they looked at that and said, wow, this is really, this is really cool. Now, rem now, remember, these guys are engineers too. I mean, they're really good. They're really good flight test people, but they're also engineers. And they yes. said, oh, this is so cool. And I said, okay, well, this is, you know, you're going to see what's inside this helmet when you go into our my big helmet. So, so give it a go. And so they'd get in the cockpit. We suit them up. We'd log them into the, the speech uh, uh, recognition system and uh, boresight the system, you know, with a head-up display kind of thing. And then we would um, uh, switch on the display. And this huge picture would open up to them. It's like sitting on the front row of an IMAX theater. And, uh, and they would say, wow. And, uh, and, and I said, well, look around a little bit. And they'd look around and, and they said, wow, this is really cool. Then we started explaining how it works. Now, they'd never seen this before in their lives, and, but they knew how to fly airplanes. And we explained some of the things that you're going to see. For example, they could actually see the radar painting the sky 
They could see the radar signals actually painting the sky. They'd see all the where these other guys are located in the in the world and in, in 3D. And they had a God's eye display where they could look down in their lap and they see this this bubble, this hemisphere of the whole world, so to speak. Uh, so that's their outside-in display. And then their head-mounted display was their inside-out display. So all of this was going on. And um, and so we'd launch them on a mission. And they would they would see this uh, information being portrayed. They'd see their energy management curves of the in the aircraft and, and so forth. And uh, that's when they said, wow, this is really cool. And that was our signal to send in the bad guys. The bad guys being the guys with the money in the military? No, no, not those bad guys. Oh, not uh, those other bad guys. No, these these are the adversaries, the computer-generated adversaries. I see. You know, they're flying along in this virtual world. They're they're flying along in this world. They see the outside, uh, you know, they see the outside world. They're flying along. They're seeing all this information. And now they're, they're in this proper, this simulation, this virtual simulation. And then... Uh, what would happen is we send in the bad guys. Mm-hmm. And the first thing they would do is they'd hear it in 3D sound behind them. They hear this guy radiating them from the behind. And then rear view mirrors would wind into the cockpit and they would see a representation of the guys coming in from behind. And then there'd be a few swear words that come out of the pilots uh, <laughs> when that happened. And then they would go into afterburner. They'd go into afterburner and start climbing straight up. And then they were... In the furball, what we call a furball, where they are in, you know, they're they're in working with this adversary um, in air-to-air combat, and they're in and out after burner speed breaks, the whole deal. Just watch Top Gun, and you'll see what they were doing, and uh, they were swearing and all this kind of stuff going on. And then about that time, what I did was I shut off the simulation. Everything went dark, and. And I said to them over the microphone in their headset, I said, okay, guys, we need another quarter, please. <laughs> Just like for space invaders or something. Yes. That's right. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> and they they were so sucked in. They said, oh, my goodness. This is, uh, we never said, I'm able to do things I've never been able to do before. Uh-huh. I mean, it's, it's the same airplane. The only thing is different is the way we're representing information in virtual space. And so um, as a result of that, we got the funding for working on the super cockpit. And, um, and, and it was a substantial amount of money because there's a lot going on, including the artificial intelligence people that would be sort of trying to infer the intent of the pilot, what we call a pilot intent inference engine. So we were trying to look at what's going on in all the sensors, what the pilot was trying to do, and basically organizing this virtual world to help them do it. Oh my goodness. Okay. Yeah. And we're also concerned about the pilots blacking out and things like that when they're pulling excessive G's and of course. And, and so that was another thing. The, the physiological state of the pilot was important. Well, Tom, that's incredible. What year was this by the way? Okay. This was about 86. What? My goodness. Okay. Yeah. The 86, uh, 85, 86, 87 time period. Now let me tell you what happened after that. So this is sort of a transition. This is what changed my life. So I got a call, phone call from um, a general in the Pentagon. And he said, he said, I know about your virtual cockpit stuff that you're doing. And uh, we would like for you to hold a press release or, or write up a press release and have a news conference. Hold a news conference on what you're doing on that virtual cockpit stuff. 
And I told him, well, it's classified. You know, it's uh, some of the stuff we're doing is classified. And he said, that's okay. Just declassify it. <laughs> and, I, and I said, okay. And he said, we need some positive publicity. It had just come out in the news that the, the Navy was spending $800 for toilet seats. The Army was spending $500 for hammers. I don't know if you remember this, but this I was, do remember that. Yeah, yeah. This was the the, the military industrial complex that was spinning us into oblivion. You know, F- fifty dollar paper clips, stuff like yeah. that. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, so they said we need some positive publicity. The defense appropriations bill is coming up, and we're going to get hammered. And so, um, so, and we don't have a black airplane to show this year. So, but we have your your stuff. And so I said, okay, I'll do it. And so. I, I sent out and wrote up this press release and CBS Evening News comes into my lab. Uh, the, you know, this is uh, Dan Rather's crowd and uh, David Martin, the Pentagon correspondent, is there for the film crew. And they spend two days, you know, taping stuff. And, uh, and I have, you know, tape, uh, tape over the top of instruments and things like that on <laughs> the cockpit. And, but anyhow, uh, and I, I end up a few days later on the CBS Evening News. Here's a, here I am, a lab puke from Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and I'm on the evening news talking about virtual cockpits. Well, that was the event that opened Pandora's box. Because after that, then ABC had to come, and NBC, and CBC, and CNN, and BBC, and Australian television, New Zealand television, the science editor of the New York Times came in and spent a whole day with me talking about the future of virtual reality. I was, I was contacted by Popular Mechanics to write an article about this. Uh, we were on the front cover of U.S. News and War Report. Uh, and, it, you know, after that, we didn't do any research anymore. We were into show business. And I started getting phone calls. Uh, I mean, we had all these visiting. Oh, we, and we had, by the way, when the, the generals came to visit, they'd heard about this. They wanted to see it we had what we call the general switch. Whenever the generals sat in the cockpit to operate this, we had the switch that's a general switch. Okay. And when we switched that on, the generals always hit their targets. <laughs> Tom, that's terrible. That's, uh, that's divisive. <laughs> <laughs> but it probably worked, right? It, it worked. <laughs> No, we they uh, they we didn't have to either throw the general switch for them to get the idea of it, but um, nevertheless, what happened as a result of all this media exposure and all these pilots, these test pilots, when they got out of the cockpit, you know, they said, "Hey, Tom, this is fantastic. We have to have this." And uh, so, as it turns out, of course, um, this uh, was over the period of twenty three years. Um, I was a, an officer for five of those years, a military officer, and then. Basically did the same job as a civil service um, scientist. I got to ask you a question. With all this uh, hype you got from the generals, did you get a promotion? <laughs> well, actually, I did. And uh, uh, and the Air Force was really generous uh, to me. Uh, they sent me to, to England to do my Ph.D. and, uh, and got some good promotions. Uh, that was equivalent to... Uh, uh, from a military standpoint, sort of between a colonel and a general by the time that I finished after the 23 years. So it was, the Air Force was good to me. And it, and it was a marvelous place to work because there were a lot of resources, a lot of smart people. We had a problem to solve and we took it seriously of how we, how we solve these problems to help, uh, help our country. 
and uh, to keep us safe. And I, I mean, that was always foremost in our mind that we are, are doing a service for the country. And of course, as you know, the military pioneers a lot of technology that eventually ends up in the civilian sector, in the consumer yes. marketplace. And that's sort of what happened here, because um, uh, as a result of this media exposure that came as a result of my super cockpit and virtual cockpit work, um, I, I was exposed to the, um, the public. And, and this um, um, elicited a number of um, questions that came my way, uh, including the um, one question that came, one of the first ones I received, was from um, a mother who had watched a, a program that I apparently I was talking about the virtual cockpit and and she called me and said you know I watched this program and I want you to know my child has uh, cerebral palsy is there anything you can do with this technology to help my child and then not long after that I, I received a phone call from a surgeon he he told me he was a thoracic surgeon he was trying to replace um, a graft uh, on the aorta and the heart and um, a vessel, the uh, artery of the heart. And um, he said, I have a real problem because I don't have a navigation system. I'm inside my patient up to my elbow, sort of feeling my way around. And my um, my map that tells me where things are located and, and what I should be doing is actually a CT scan. It's on a light box on the side of the operating room. And I'm having to look over to that all the time. And what I need is a map that I can look into the patient and see it there. Ah. Can I do that? And then another surgeon said, can you put my eyes inside the patient so that I can look around? Uh, because I want to do this minimally invasive surgical procedure where I'm on the inside looking out rather than the outside looking in. And then a, there was another phone call from a firefighting company. Uh, they said, you know, we have a real problem with firefighters. They walk into these buildings. They're full of smoke. They don't know where the fire is. They don't know if the people are inside. Uh, the other firemen are in there. They don't necessarily see them. And the, the person who's directing all of this, the fire chief, is on the outside of the building with a radio. He doesn't know anything. Is there any way that you can give us basically a cockpit to use inside a, a building with, with a fire and smoke building? Uh, so we can, you know, find our way around. So anyhow, I was getting three or four phone calls a week like this. Wow. And my answers to them, these people that called was said, well, yeah, you could do that. As a matter of fact, that'd be the easy to do compared to what I'm trying to do. And that's when I realized, you know, we're onto something really big. This is a paradigm shift. This is a shift in the way we get bandwidth to and from the brain. Because we noticed through all the tests that we did um, in, the, in the military cockpits, the virtual cockpits, how easily the uh, crew members learned this and how the much how well they remembered it. The retention was enormous. And it was like a, a, a much higher bandwidth of the brain. And so, uh, and it wakened spatial memory. Mm. So we, uh, I realized at that time, you know, there are lots of applications beyond the military applications for this technology. And again, this was a, a 1986, 87 time period. And I convinced the Air Force that we needed to come up with a long-term investment strategy for this virtual reality technology. And what I'd like to do is spend a year building this long-term strategy and sort of take a sabbatical uh, with a travel budget yes. and uh, to sort of investigate. And they said, okay. And um, so I, I went everywhere. I went to hospitals, 
the toy companies, the kindergartens, to um, aerospace companies, to computer companies. Now, remember, this is an 87 time period and where there wasn't a microprocessor. Yes. There was not the Internet. There were not these things that uh, really do exist today. But what I was able to see and realize, oh, my goodness, we're going to have an explosion in not only in computing technology, but in the connections of those computers with what's happening with telecommunications and fiber optics and what was going to eventually happen with um, these optical systems that we're, we're looking at. But no one was working on the interface. This is, we're still sitting in front of a screen and uh, wiggling our fingers on a keyboard that was designed in the late 1800s. And so it was clear that we needed to have a, a shift in the way that we think about the interface of humans to these advanced computing systems. So um, I put together a proposal as a result of my sabbatical. And I said, when I came back home, I said, hey, guys, you know, the best thing we can do with this technology is to get it out of the military and get it out into the world where we have all of these pulls, um, like the people that called me in medicine, in education, in design, and so forth. And what I would like to do is establish a lab somewhere in the United States associated with a university that would concentrate on that side of things, where we could have students who learn about it, and they eventually become our missionaries and our evangelists and actually build the technology. Because uh, you've invested a lot in my education and, uh, and a lot in this technology, and we need to get it out in the world where it'll make a difference. And, and I would like to do it. I'd like to, to uh, shop this out and find out who bites on the, the bullet. So as it turns out, um, I went to many places, uh, MIT and Caltech and Stanford and Carnegie Mellon, the University of Texas, the University of Utah, University of North Carolina, and the University of Washington. And um, when I walked, uh, I, I sent a cold call to the University of Washington saying, I have this idea for a lab that would work on virtual reality in advanced computer interfaces. Uh, and here's, a, here's the plan for it. Are you interested? And I, go, I got back a call from the dean of the College of Engineering, Ray Bowen, whom you know. I know Ray, yes. And uh, he said, why don't you come out and talk to us? And um, so I, uh, I did. Flew out to Seattle, and um, I walked into his office, and uh, and there was another guy in the office with him, and his name was Ed Steer. I remember Ed, yes. Ed Steer. He, I said, uh, Ed Steer introduced himself and, and said he was the director of the Washington Technology Center. The WTC, yes. That's right. And uh, I said, well, haven't I met you somewhere before? He said, yeah. He says, I was the chief scientist of the Air Force. And I was in your lab at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and I saw what you were doing, and we want it here. <laughs> okay. So they made me an offer I couldn't refuse. They brought me in as a full professor with tenure and gave me some space and a fluke hall and, um, and a, a budget and with a different kind of report card. They said, okay, um, your job is to spin off companies. Your job is to generate patents and build a bridge between university and industry. Now, you'll do the regular professor stuff. You know, you'll teach and you'll write proposals and <laughs> mentor students and all that kind of thing. And I was thinking, wow, that's exactly what I want to do. I want to build stuff and get it out there. 
and be and also be able to tell folks what I've learned over this past 23 years. So in, in September of 1989, I moved to Seattle to start the Human Interface Technology Lab at the University of Washington. And um, as a result of what happened in my mandate, started with one person, me, a budget, a mandate, and a great university. The fences are really low. What attracted me to UW versus the other universities I went to is that the fences are really low between departments. People work together. Oh, okay. And uh, I mean, I found that that was, uh, that was something that was unique. <laughs> that is true. I don't think a lot of people realize that in universities, many professors live in, in their own silos. Yeah. There's no communication. Yeah. And that wasn't true at UW. That's right. No. And, uh, and basically, I had the run of the university, as all the professors did. And to work with, uh, uh, you know, with EE and with uh, ME and with bio and, and uh, material science and civil and, and computer science and the medical school, dental school, nursing. As a matter of fact, in the end, my lab grew from one person to 120, uh -huh. so, which included faculty members, uh, uh, with students, with uh, staff, uh, visiting scholars, things like that. When we had funding from uh, the government, we had funding from uh, industry, sort of half and half. And um, this is when we spun off 27 companies. And those companies, several of those companies are traded on NASDAQ and a market cap of, 20, uh, of $12 billion. And this is done with students just with my students who um, uh, got turned on, on fire, and, uh, and took what they were learning in uh, the lab and, and started companies from it. So that was the process story of what, what happened uh, starting in 1989. And here we are 30 years later. Uh, what has gone on during that time? Well, transformational. Because as you know, we went through several ups and downs in virtual reality. Oh, I didn't know that. I mean, it would be overhyped and everybody get excited, sort of like artificial intelligence, you know? Yes. It, it, it'd get high and low, and uh, you've been there. You, yes, I have. And, and, and the whole neural net uh, stuff. Um, but we survived those times. And in the end, uh, the, the lab actually propagated to, to New Zealand and Australia. Yeah, you have hit labs at the University of Canterbury and the University of Tasmania. Yes. Which is a, that's a fun word to say. Yes. Because I usually think of Bugs Bunny and the Tasmanian that's Devil. That's right. <laughs> I've seen some real Tasmanian Devils. Have you? Okay. So what are Tasmanian Devils? Are they little? Well, let me tell this story about that. Uh, like doggy things or what? Yeah, well, the, the, uh, so here we have the, the hit lab that um, has um, 120 folks in it and uh, spinning off these companies. And, um, and we have students from, it, it's a ubiquitous lab. I mean, we have students from every department in the College of Engineering with the exception of chemical engineering. We even had material science and engineering and uh, uh, bio and electrical and mechanical and industrial and you know so forth. But we also had students from art, drama and music Oceans and Fisheries, Medical School, Dental School, Nursing School, Geography, um, the um, College of the Built Environment, Architecture. And uh, these were students that actually lived in the hit lab. I mean, they were there in terms of that was there where their office was. And what I would do is organize these students into clusters of four members. And they would be in this little sort of uh, bullpen with four of them. And one would be a psychology major, 
One would be a double E major. One would be oceans and fisheries. And the other, a drama, PhD. <laughs> and you say, what? You say, yeah. And so what I do is give them, uh, seed them with a problem to solve. And uh, lo and behold, these kids would generate uh, uh, several patents a week. Seriously, a week. Oh, yeah. I mean, we had one year, we had more patents in the hit lab than all the rest of the university combined. And uh, the reason for it was because of the different perspectives. You'd have these different ways of looking at problems, like the blind men around the elephant, mm -hmm. right? The, each of them have their own perspective, and they think that's what an elephant is like. When in fact, when they start comparing notes with the other blind people, they finally figure out, well, it's bigger than that. And there are different ways of looking at it. And so that's what we found happening with these students. They had, a, they had their own uh, lexicon of um, the way they talk about things, but they had to learn another lexicon that, from a different, different perspective. And so it was amazing. To, to see the product. And these kids were on fire. I couldn't get them to go home. You know, they just uh, loved it. And uh, the stimulation that came from that. And then, of course, what we had fuel the fire was we had a virtual worlds consortium. This was uh, 50 companies that helped support the laboratory. They would pledge $50,000 a year or equivalent in, in, in kind to be a member of this consortium to see what was going on. They didn't get anything for it other than information and, of course, access to our students. And they showed up. And we had these, uh, and the, the students would present to these consortium members. And we had, again, the 50 of them, we had, you know, Microsoft and Boeing and Sun Microsystems and at the time Digital Equipment Corporation and Broken Hill Proprietary, the largest company in Australia, uh, uh, from all over the world. From Japan, we had seven companies from Japan. And these people show up, would show up and uh, to see what was going on in this phenomenon of how these students from diverse backgrounds, a transdimension, a transdisciplinary background, were working together, and because uh, they'd never seen it before. Um, and then what we saw happening was these people were starting to talk to each other. They didn't go to conferences where they, you know, they went to conferences with people in the same business, but they'd never been to conferences where you had a people from Chevron sitting across the table from a Nike um, executive. And they started comparing notes and starting projects together. Uh -huh. And they loved it. And it was quite, a, quite a, an enterprise that was underway. So that's how all these companies got spun off, the 27 companies. And because of the, um, the not only a combination of the kids, uh, but the venture capitalists started hanging out saying, uh, do you have something for us to invest in? And we did. So, <laughs> so things got started that way. Excellent. Well, I tell you what, Tom, I'd like to, I'd like to talk about some of these spinoff companies and some of the new technology and the state of the art of virtual reality. So, Dr. Furness, I'll turn it over to you. I, I don't know where you want to start. I have some specific questions, but, uh, uh t tell us some of the technology which has come out in your startup companies. You bet. Well, certainly what we are trying to do is embrace this whole idea of, uh, the push and the pull of technology. I mean, for many years, uh, virtual reality and augmented reality were um, in push mode. Basically, the whole idea, if you build it, they will come. That, uh, that the technology was developing. We knew from the early days, especially the military days, it was profound in terms of the power it had. 
but what could we do to get it out of the military to where it could be used in not only vertical markets on the outside, consumer markets uh, and uh, industrial markets, um, but how can we could uh, uh, solve real problems with it? And so you have the, the push of the, of the technology and you have the pull of the applications. And how do you make these work together? Well, as an, in an earlier segment, actually the first segment, we talked about try that actually VR emerged from, at least from my, uh, my work in it, uh, beginning in 1966, emerged as a result of trying to solve problems in, uh, in military aviation. And as a result of the process of solving those problems, we invented what we know today as virtual reality. And we found over the years what a profound impact it has on the way people think. And as I transitioned from the military to a university environment, we started looking across different domains and how this technology might be applied. Now, one of the beginning things that happened was that uh, when, I, when I showed up as, uh, in 1989, very few people knew what virtual reality was, that it existed or what it was. And so um, we decided maybe we should try to introduce a device into the consumer marketplace. And, um, and working with some of my, my colleagues, uh, even before um, arriving at, um, in Seattle, we came up with what we call a personal eyewear display. And this looked like ski goggles that you would wear. And uh, what it would be is, a, is basically a, a virtual display, a, a head-up type display that would... Uh, display for over one eye, um, a virtual screen. It appeared one meter, uh, uh, three meters away and about one meter wide. It's sort of like a home theater system that you wear on your head. And it would plug into this little uh, battery pack uh, with a television receiver uh, hooked around your waist. And we started working on this uh, and a patent was issued in the early 90s. And we started a company called uh, Virtual Vision to uh, make these. And indeed, we did, and we uh, raised a bunch of money and uh, and uh, started um, building these devices. And so this was a, a really simple display in that we just took a, a a liquid crystal screen that was rear illuminated, and then we projected down to a prism that you would look through, and you'd see this virtual image, but you'd also see the outside world around it. And uh, so it it didn't replace the outside world; it was just sort of a small piece that you saw. Color or, or again appeared out in the outside world. And so you could sit on Waikiki Beach and watch the NFL playoffs uh, if you wanted to uh, uh, with this device, with broadcast television. And so we introduced this. Uh, actually, the first um, uh, opening of this product, uh, we, we took it to the Consumer Electronics Show, and uh, people were lined up for two hours to see this thing. And uh, they'd take a what, look what, at it. what year? What year was this? This roughly? was in ninety four, ninety five time period. Okay. And uh, they uh, they would say, "Oh gosh, this is amazing! Uh, this is transformative. You guys are going to make a fortune." And we started saying to ourselves, "We're going to make a fortune." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we started believing our press. And so what happened? That, that could that can be very dangerous. It can be dangerous. Know. That's yes, right. So we ramped up, we were producing these things and, and we, we, uh, they appeared in the marketplace. We had a big advertisement on the New York times and all this. And, and indeed, um, uh, people would show up and, and line up outside of Magnolia Hi-Fi, which was the first place where we introduced it. We had the, 
the uh, network television people were there and uh, the big introduction and people would go in put it on and say, wow, this is really neat. I want one of these things. And they looked at the price tag. Oh. And it was $799. That was back in 95, you know, this is 94. That was a, that was a pretty steep bill. And by the way, we weren't making any money at that, uh, that, that price point. But, uh, um, you know, the technology was still pretty archaic at that time. So, um, what happened was that, um, People didn't buy them. They wanted to buy them, but it would just cost too much. And so uh, we were disappointed in that. But then we started seeing uh, there was one market segment that was buying these things like crazy. We said, hmm, what's going on here? And we tracked it down and there were dentists. Dentists were buying this um, virtual vision display. And we went and visited the dentist and saying, what's going on? And they showed us. What they were doing is they were giving these to their patients. The patients who would put them on, they would select a movie, plug it in the oh. VCR, play this oh. into the, the headset, and there they were in the dentist chair. And uh, they were watching this video or this movie while the dentists were inflicting pain on them, you know? And, uh, and the dentist said, we, the, the patients love it. And uh, we love it because they don't complain anymore, you know? They, they are watching this movie. They're sort of zoned out in their own space. And... And they said, however, it is creating another problem. Now we can't get them to leave. You know, <laughs> I can't leave now. This is a good part. You know, they, and, ju- they didn't finish the movie, of course. <laughs> That's right. So, and so, but even more remarkable than that was um, the children. They would have these small kids in and they'd hook this up to Nintendo. And so here the kids were playing Nintendo with his headset on, with a virtual the, the headset on. And sitting in a dentist chair while the dentists were doing the thing. And usually the kids are terrified and they don't want to be there. And so these kids loved it. And they'd go home and talk to their mothers. Mommy, when can I go back to the dentist again so I can see this, uh, see this special glasses? And so when did that ever happen? When did kids ever say they want to go back to the dentist? But the, doctor, the dentists were saying, you know, it seems like they don't notice the pain. When, you know, when there is some, because they're distracted. And we're saying, hmm, that's interesting. So then we t- contacted our, some of our colleagues at uh, Seattle Children's Hospital to see if this pain thing really was um, relevant, uh, especially with uh, leukemia patients. These little patients are, are really sick. And the way that you determine the efficacy of the treatment, which is basically chemotherapy, uh, they would have to extract bone marrow and look at look at uh, the um, you know what was going on with the white count and in uh, the blood marrow and and so um, they uh, and this is a really painful procedure. You put a needle in the hip and extract the bone marrow and the children would just scream. It's so painful and they're so sick you can't anesthetize them. And so um, uh, this was what was happening. And we went into the uh, to that uh, to the hospital with our equipment. Again, it was connected with Nintendo, and these kids would be um, going through this procedure. But they're playing Nintendo at the time, and the doctor would put the needle in, and the kid would make a little say oomph or something like that, and just continue to play the game. And the nurses and doctors were looking at each other, saying, "What's going on here?" You know, and it's like they didn't even notice it, and. Uh, that set us on a whole different track 
of what we're doing with these virtual displays. We said, wow, what's happening is in order to experience pain, you have to be conscious of pain. But if you're doing something else that is engaging, then you don't notice it. Mm-hmm. And so we went to the Harborview Burn Center. This is one of the regional burn clinics where these patients are severely burned and uh, they are doped up with uh, morphine most of the time. So when they're, uh, the morphine can control the so-called rest pain when you're in the, just lying in the bed in semi-agony, but the morphine can control that. And, but morphine isn't good. You know, it's, a, it's a toxic, it's addictive, it's yep. a, a pretty bad stuff. And when they went in for um, wound care to remove staples from skin grafts or to uh, do physical therapy, or they would soak the patients in these tubs of water and then slough off the dead skin, anytime that happened, the pain would shoot through the roof. You couldn't dose them with enough morphine because it's what is called breakthrough pain. It would break right through that. So we started introducing VR to the burn clinic. And the patients, again, would put on headset and we built a virtual world where they'd be flying in a um, basically in snow um, they would be in a snow <clears throat> canyon and um, and they would be uh, snowmen they're throwing snowballs at them when they're flying through this canyon and they would throw snowballs back at the um, snowmen and uh, this was all going on and uh, during the time that they were receiving this treatment and uh, then we'd ask them for a pain index and what often what would happen is the patient will say, well, when are you going to start? Really? When, in fact, you'd finished the procedure. What is a pain index? Is that where they ask you, like, tell me on a scale of 1 to 10 what yes. the pain's like? Yes. I see. Okay. And this is a well-established pain scale. I mean, that, uh, and it, they, they talk about what do you feel when you're at this particular number. And uh, usually, you know, with breakthrough pain, it's just off the scale. Rest pain is maybe 2 or 3. Um, but then, uh, when they were in VR, the pain went from 10 to zero. And, um, and then we asked them the unpleasantness of the pain, the, uh, the, the feeling of presence in it, all these kinds of things. And we thought, well, this is, pro- this is amazing, but it only worked once. You know, you put them in this world, it would, uh, after they get used to it, it's not going to work. We were wrong. Exactly the opposite. It gets better with time. Um, as they get in. And furthermore, they remember being in that world. And we're now finding out that's a big factor in chronic pain. These other things were acute pain during wound care. But in chronic pain, with rheumatoid arthritis, things like that, it even works there because of the model that the people build in their head. So what this did, uh, this early work, is it set us off on an altogether different track of an application for VR. And now uh, VR is being used worldwide in uh, hospitals, not only for treating things like burn pain or acute acute pain, but also for in pediatric clinics. And we're actually using it. We have a a, a project with the Make a Wish Foundation, where we're actually making wishes for these kids who are terminally ill mm-hmm. uh, to uh, to help them with um, giving them something to do. Um, in VR. So the impact on medicine just from the pain standpoint is huge, not to mention the diagnostics, the simulator training and things like that. So so in my hit lab, we had a major project going on 
in looking at medical applications of VR, including the pain work, also for surgery, simulation to train surgeons. Uh, amazing what happens there. Uh, in the case of, uh, for example, urology, where there is going to be a, a procedure called the transurethral resection of the prostate. That's when you go in and carve away part of the prostate that's restricting urine flow and urethra. Ah. And um, this is a painful process. It can be a painful process, and you don't want to mess it up uh, because uh, that can change your will to live, you know what I mean. And um, so what would happen is uh, uh, the doctors that are learning, the uh, residents, are, are they only you know, have a limited amount of time to practice this procedure. And over a period of three-year residency, they could only maybe do um, uh, a total of maybe 30 or 40 procedures on real patients. And uh, of course, most of these patients are going to be normal. Nothing unusual happens. But with our simulator that we built in conjunction with the uh, UW Medical Center, University of Washington Medical Center, these um, residents could do 50 procedures a day. And with all kinds of variations, wow. with things that would happen, with bleeders and things like that. And all, what it is is flight simulator. It's like the pilots train. We're having the surgeons train the same way. And uh, this has been done with sinus surgery simulation, with suturing simulation, training uh, medical students. And so this is a boon for training, especially medical training. So here again, as we have an application pool that's come from this. Well, you can see from your illustration the need for this cross-curricular sort of approach to things. Yes. You need, you need the psychology, the medicine. You need the art. You need cultural yes. anthropology. You need all of these different disciplines because they all contribute. That's right. And, and, you know, no one, no single discipline owns virtual reality mm -hmm. because it cuts across. It is basically, um, uh, it's all aspects of building tools for humans to work in the world. And um, just like everybody uses wheels, you know, so um, <laughs> yeah, it's that kind of thing. It's a ubiquitous kind of technology. Now, to jump around a little bit, uh, certainly uh, we were working on, on these applications, but again, we had to get the to get the technology to keep up with the put the need. Mm -hmm. And uh, up to this point in time, we were building displays that uh, started off with some kind of image plane or what we call an object plane, uh, where an image was formed, and then we relay that image to the eyes some way. But you had to start off with this um, uh, object plane. So it was a little screen in case of the, uh, you know, for example, the virtual vision display I just mentioned, a very small screen. And then you magnify and you project it so it appears to be a big screen. But the problem is, you're really limited in how many picture elements you can put in that small screen. Yes. And especially in high luminance. So uh, there had to be a change in the way we did it. And so this is where we got into um, this whole idea of why are we having to start off with an object plane to begin with? Why don't we scan the image directly on the retina of the eye? And so we started working on this concept of a virtual retinal display where you start off with a coherent beam of light from a micro laser, very low energy laser. And then you scan it such that the screen uh, is the retina of the eye. That's the only place where an image exists. 
is by scanning the photons across the surface of the retina. Very low energy. As a matter of fact, it's lower energy than what you get outside when you walk out in daylight. And what you now see is an image that doesn't exist and is very high resolution, very wide field of view, high luminous. As a matter of fact, as, as high luminous as you want it to be. And you know, you could probably run the thing with a hearing aid battery. So this direct retinal projection was transformative. You know, the, the biggest objective I hear, objection I hear today about virtual reality is the clunky headsets. This is an answer to that, isn't it? It is. It is indeed. And so what we did with this, uh, this was uh, at the time we um, patented this and we have several patents and uh, we had a company that wanted to license it. And uh, that company was uh, Microvision. And Microvision licensed it from the university. At the time, it was the largest uh, license deal the University of Washington had ever done. Uh -huh. And it was, um, you know, it was a, a huge license fee. <laughs> I think it was $5.133 million, uh, a 9% uh, equity in the company, a 2.5% royalty stream with a minimum that was promised. And uh, Microvision uh, started uh, making these things. And then they went public and uh, turned the university stock into something that was really worth a lot. And now they still exist, and they're one of the companies traded on NASDAQ. I see. Where can I get one of these? I want to get rid of my clunky headset. Well, it's not. That's that's the thing. You know, right now, the uh, uh, you can't get it because it's not being used. It was, it was being used by the military for a while, and now that engine is now being used for head-up displays in cars. And... Uh, uh, because it has such uh, can have such high luminance, but it is certainly the wave of the future. Now, the company Magic Leap started out using this concept, the technology, and actually a variation of it was done by the Google Glass, and um, so it will come again into that uh, into the world because it's got to be the way to go in terms of getting rid of the clunky headset. Well, let me ask you about Google Glass. I think that they kind of went away. I don't hear much about them anymore, but they um, they probably had something to do with your your ski goggles and your virtual retinal display, or, or did they? Well, they were related, and it was very small field of view. And of course, uh, the problem with the, uh, the Google Glass uh, was it, the technology worked. It worked, and it worked pretty well. The problem was the social aspect of it. No one really realized what that was going to do. When you're stalking to a person and they have this Google Glass on and you don't know if they're paying attention to you or they're paying attention to what's being displayed in the Google Glass. And uh, people started, you know, are you taking pictures of me? Are you taking images of me? Which you could do, by the way. And so this became, you know, that that was something they never really did get into at the time. Now, Google Glass is as a resurgence uh, and uh, again, better designs. But it's now being used in vertical markets. These are where people absolutely have to have this in order to do their job. And so that's different. That's an all the different different marketplace than what where Google originally introduced this. I see. So there is a, a, a big deal about uh, now that you have you're wearing these glasses and these glasses display information and you're now interacting with another human being and they know that you're wearing these glasses but they don't know what you're seeing. Uh, and uh, are they 
you know, somehow psychoanalyzing you while they're looking at you, you know, you just don't know. So, you know, I so, feel that way, Tom, when I talk to a psychologist, somebody <laughs> that, no, a professor in psychology, I talk to him and I think, is he analyzing me? Yeah. Uh, same, same thing, I guess. Yeah. Well, I get that with my wife, you know, anytime I talk to her. <laughs> yeah, ditto. Yeah, ditto. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so anyhow, the, the virtual retinal display became one of our mainstream, um, um, devices that we were working on in the lab, developing the technology. We had this big uh, project uh, funded by uh, Microvision. But here's what happened. We had one of our lab units, our bench top units, where we're optical bench unit, where we were displaying this uh, image that's, that's uh, on your retina. So we'd, we'd have people come in, could see it and see how it works. And uh, so there's one guy that uh, came in, who, a gentleman who was um, actually on the board of directors of the Washington Technology Center. He said, I've been hearing about this virtual retinal display. What, we, what I'd like to do is see it operating. We said, okay, come down to the lab and we'll, we'll do that. So at the time, we we're using acoustic optical modulators and in order to do scanning. And uh, this is a monochrome display, monocular display, but the image was painted with high resolution on your retina. Uh-huh. And it was remarkable. But it was just one eye. Oh, so we uh, invited him down to the lab. You know, we were just using one eye at the time. This is a monocular system, an optical bench. And uh, so uh, he came down to the lab and uh, uh, he looked into, he sat down in front of the optical bench and looked into our objective lens of this. And uh, sure enough, saw this virtual image. And he said, wow, this is really amazing. And uh, really high resolution, high luminance. And we said, yeah, we'll take off your spectacles. And he took off his spectacles and he's, he's, he said, well, I could see it just as clearly without my spectacles. And we said, yeah, we're not really using the optical power of your glasses or the lens of your eye. It's, you know, basically we're writing almost like directly on the retina. Wow. But don't you, w wouldn't you still have to take into account whether the person was nearsighted or farsighted? No, or, no. That doesn't, no, wow. It okay. doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. And so it's clear. I mean, the image is just as clear because you have, you basically have a beam, a non-diverging beam of light that's collimated mm -hmm. and it goes right to the retina. So, uh, so he was seeing this clearly as we do. I mean, all, all the other people that, um, that were well, been working with the virtual retinal display, but then he did something else. He then, uh, switched to his left eye and started looking with his left eye into this, mm -hmm. just on his own and his mouth dropped open. And he said, wait a minute, what are you doing here? We said, well, what do you mean? He says, I can see this with my blind eye. We said, what? He says, I'm blind in my left eye and I can see that image. <laughs> and we said, what? <laughs> and so he said, yeah, I've been in an automobile accident and it, it left and it, it, it blinded my eye because there's all the scar tissue in my eye and, and I'm seeing this image. And we said, oh yeah? And so... After that, we went to the uh, Department of Ophthalmology uh, at the university in the medical school and said, this is what happened. And they started sending us patients. And sure enough, these patients that had especially had optical problems in their eyes were able to see with the virtual retinal display. And then we started finding out that people, even with degenerative diseases of the retina, were able to see better. You know, with age-related macular degeneration, uh, and even when they thought the receptors were dead, we were getting light into those receptors. Oh, my goodness. And we found out later is the fact that we're using coherent light. Uh, the receptors act like waveguides. 
and that we the coupling efficiency of our coherent light, which is much greater than what you could get from broadband light, non-coherent light. Um, and so they were actually seeing. And so what this did, again, by accident, just like the dentists, it just took us off in another direction where we started working on low vision and low vision aids. And we we uh, wrote up a, a proposal and got some money from the, the um, National Science Foundation to work on this. So it's one of these journeys I've taken, uh, and this has been true all the way through, where you stumble over something that you weren't, you were going in another direction, but you stumbled on something. And that became more interesting than the direction you were taking initially. Well, that is uh, th- that is amazing and exciting stuff. I can actually see how coherent light could actually go down the waveguides that you were mentioned, whereas broadband light wouldn't be able to do that. And so that's kind of what happened. Yeah, how about that? Uh, tell us something about some of your other uh, current projects. Uh, maybe... One of them is the Rat Lab, and we we were talking offline, and it kind of reminds me of the Skunk Works, and I don't know why engineers use deplorable animals to describe <laughs> what they're doing, but the but the Rat Lab stands for Rockin' and Thinkin', is that right? That's correct. And it's an incubator. Tell us about that. Yes. Well, you know, I was enjoying my uh, my activity at the university, certainly a wonderful place to, to, to do research, and uh, but it is a bureaucracy. And uh, I found that uh, sometimes, uh, having worked for the Air Force for in the Department of Defense for 23 years, you know, I got used to the bureaucracy, but it does sure does slow you down and um, reduce your flexibility, especially if you want to try out things. And so I decided that what I needed was an outlet to do some pretty far out things uh, that I wouldn't be able to do at the university because I would be labeled as a flake. Well, I am a flake, but I didn't want to be labeled as a flake. You know, and so in 2005, I was um, thinking about how can I hire some high school dropouts because these kids are brilliant, but the university would never hire them. And um, I had some projects I want to do that I wasn't particularly interested in giving away to the university because those were my own ideas. And they were orthogonal to things I was doing at the university. So um, I was driving home one day, and I just happened to glance over uh, the side of the road. There was a house for sale, not too far where my, my home is. And I started thinking about that. Hmm, what if I could build a residential business, sort of a lab that uh, would be a, like a garage shop operation where I was able to play with technology? with a bunch of kids, adults, PhDs, kindergarten, whatever. And uh, I could hire who I wanted to hire. I could knock holes in the wall if I wanted to. I could pay them what I wanted to pay them and not have to go through the bureaucracy uh, that would prevent that from happening. Uh, Generate IP if necessary, spin off companies. So I, I talked to my wife about this and and she thought I was crazy, but uh, I convinced her that we needed to buy this house. <laughs> okay. So we bought this house and turned it into a lab. And uh, we, I was kicking that around with my wife, and she's the one that actually came up with the name. She said, well, you know, experiments, you know, rats and things like that. And I said, 
Oh, yeah. Okay, and, and I so, get the connection now for rats. Okay. Yeah, and so uh, yeah, the rats of Nymph. You know, the, the, there's a movie about that, and um, and rats are pretty smart and really uh, uh, industrious, and uh, so uh, we decided the Rat Lab would be a good name, but. But rat doesn't mean what the people think it is. It means, you know, we're going to be a rocking group of people. Yes. And uh, thinking people. And uh, I was thinking of sitting in a rocking chair, just sitting there and thinking. And, and, uh, but there's a different uh, connotation to rocking as well. So, um, so I started the Rat Lab as a, as a Washington company, an LLC, uh, that would be working on just investigating advanced technology. And um, I started working with uh, some clients who said, could you help me with this problem? And I said, oh, okay. And uh, so I, um, I started uh, looking at what they were trying to do. In this case, they were trying to use light to characterize matter. And I'm sort of a photonics guy. So I said, well, yeah, we could probably look at that. And uh, so I gathered together some of my, my rats and um, we started looking at this and we said, uh, uh, we wouldn't do it the way you're thinking about doing it. We do it now, entirely. Now, by rats, you don't mean literal rats. You no, mean employees in your lab. That's right. The 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 kids and the employees that work at the at the rat lab are called rats, including <laughs> okay. me. I'm the king rat. And so uh, we started looking at this, and lo and behold, we uh, came up with two or three patents. And uh, the company said, "Well, that's great." Uh, and uh, could you develop us uh, prototypes? And we said, "Well, sure." And I what I did was I chalked this house full of all kinds of technology. And we have, you know, we make our own electronic fabrication printers and, and machine milling machines and things like that. And so, uh, and so we started making stuff and, um, and they said, wow, this is pretty good. How would you like to take over all of our R and D? And I said, really? I mean, I'm, I'm here to, I want to play with stuff. And they said, well, we'll, you know, you can do that too. And I said, well, it's really going to cost you. And they said, well, how much? And I said, a million bucks. I didn't know. I just threw it all throughout that. And they said, okay. (laughs) You know, of course, you didn't ask for enough. No, at that time, I said, good grief. I should have asked for two or three, you know. Absolutely. So anyhow, we got some money and we started playing around with technology. And we we ended up with 20, I think it's 20 patents or something like that in this particular area. And then we got approached by uh, a few other companies, one who wanted to work on uh, what was called heart rate games. How do, we, uh, how do you use games uh, as a means of helping people get healthy uh, and, and with exercise machines? So what we did was figure out a way to take a bicycle, just our, your regular bicycle, plunk it into this machine, and you'd be pedaling away on this bicycle, and you put on a headset, virtual reality headset, and you become a dragon. And you breathe fire and you start, you're flying around in, in three dimensional space while you're pedaling and your paddling charges up your flamethrower and you have to keep an energy level up on that flamethrower. And then you're flying around and you have these dragons that are trying to attack you and you're, you're zapping them with your flamethrower and things like that. And it's, it's back to the pain thing we talked about before. You get completely distracted that you're exercising. And uh, by the time 30 minutes is up, the game's over. And they say, really, we have to quit now? When in fact, you look at the profile of what you've done. Um, and and the, um, we came up a way to, with doing adaptively. So we wanted to keep you in the zone of where you were sufficiently challenged, but it wasn't too much, you know, so that you would, you would stay on this curve of exercising 
And, um, and eventually over a period of time, you get to the point where you didn't have to have a game anymore. You felt really good exercising. And then it became a social thing. You wanted to compete with other people. And getting people over that hump of uh, where exercising is unpleasant to where it is pleasant because you're fit, you're more fit. That was our objective. And we worked on that for a while so with a company called Heart Rate Games. And then we, we spun off a few companies along the way. One of the, um, uh, one of the projects I started working on was uh, with the XPRIZE. I don't know if you've heard of the XPRIZE Foundation. No, let me, let me back up. Heart, heart Rate Gains, if I wanted to buy one of these, is it commercially available now? Nope, it's not. Uh, as it turns out, Heart Rate Games went under. <laughs> oh no this that, is such a great idea tom and i need exercise yeah well you know it would work and we knew it worked but the problem is the 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 industry is dominated by a few manufacturers and we started talking to those manufacturers and uh, they just were not interested they thought no oh, it's going to be too too big a deal too much too expensive and uh, you know we have a direct line to the, all of these fitness centers and we we're trying to convince them that this is a way to go and and so, as it turns out, uh, we couldn't get through that particular um, roadblock. I would think the I would think the home market would be really good. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and it would it could transform this whole um, situation where people it makes people uncomfortable to exercise. But if you you know if you uh, no pain no gain kind of thing, uh, but we can make the pain go away and make it fun, make exercising fun, so you get to a point where you're fa- fairly fit. Well, keep me up on that because I want one. You want one, okay? <laughs> yeah, I want one, okay. So yeah, so that's that was uh, one of the projects we worked on, and then um, another project we um, I started uh, working with uh, the uh, the X Prize Foundation and X Prize. I don't know if you know about the X Prize Foundation, but they no, no, they award these uh, big prizes for accomplishing something, pressing the technology limit. And, you know, SpaceX won the X prize for one stage to orbit. And there's an X prize for mining on the moon and for acid in oh, the oceans and things like that. And anyhow, this X prize was a tricorder X prize, the medical tricorder, like in Star Trek, yes. where the, the doctor scans a patient non-invasively and tells what's wrong with them. So I was uh, uh, asked by the, uh, the medical director of the X prize, tricorder X prize, if I would like to be a judge of this. Now, it turns out this guy used to work for me at the HIT lab. He's a physician, neurologist. He was actually on the staff of my lab at the University of Washington. And he went on and is a professor at UCSD, but he became the medical director of this project. He said, I'd like for you to be a a judge. And I said, heck with that. I want to be a contestant. (laughs) And uh, I want to build one of these tricorder deals. And um, as it turns out, um, I, I got involved. Uh, we signed up to be a contestant and started uh, down that road. And then we found out that really this isn't going to take us anything advanced. We're just going to be integrating what's already out there uh, because of the, the sponsor of the X Prize. Was, that's what they insisted. And I said, well, we're not going to do any blue sky work. And that, I said, I think I'll just do my own X Prize. And so I got together with the rats and said, okay, we're going to do this. So I said, um, let's go to work and find out what's really killing people. And as we did the research, we found out pretty much it's heart disease. That is a silent killer. Yes. And people have heart disease and don't know it. And the way Western medicine works, 
they only intervene when you have an event and you, and that may be too late. You have a heart attack and then you die or you're injured for the rest of your life. And so there's not a whole lot that goes on in preventative heart disease. Uh, if you do have a good physician who does an EKG every year, you may be able to pick up on some of this, but EKG isn't too good, actually. Mm-hmm. So we started digging down and said, how can we come up with a warning system for cardiovascular disease? And we stumbled upon traditional Chinese medicine. Okay. Because these have, these have been practicing this for 2,000 years of where a, a traditional Chinese medicine physician will feel the pulse, the pattern of the pulse. They do. They take the pulse with three fingers on the, the radial artery on your left arm and on your right arm too, but mainly the left arm. And they can tell pretty much what's going on in the body by sounding the body. The pulse actually is like sonar. It tells you what's going on throughout the body. And they My have, goodness, they must have pretty sensitive touch. Oh, yeah. And I mean, it's, it's a human pattern recognition thing. Mm-hmm. And they can tell by the timing and the shape of the pulse and things like that what's going on. Well, I didn't believe this. I didn't believe that that was really happening until we said, okay, where can we find one of these guys, these traditional Chinese medicine guys? And as it turns out, the largest traditional Chinese medicine clinic in the U.S. is over in Pulsebo, Washington. Okay. On the peninsula. Yes. <laughs> and so we went over and talked to this guy. He actually came to us. And we, we said, we want to talk to him about this. And then what he did, the first thing he did is he went around the room. There were, I think, eight or 10 of us rats, you know, around the room. And he went one at a time and felt our uh, pulse and told us our whole history, medical history. I couldn't believe it. None of us could believe it. That he, was, he told us, and he didn't know us uh, this first time he'd met us. So this is beginning to make a believer out of me. Well, you, you can't argue with success, can you? That's right. And so uh, and so, we said, hey, how would you like to do a project with us? <laughs> what we'd like to do is instrument you. What we'd like to do is digitize what you're feeling. Mm-hmm. And you tell us what, what you, what, how you interpret what you're feeling. And what we'll do is be, build some machine learning algorithms. And then we'll take those patterns and build a library and be able to recognize, you know, what the diagnosis is based upon the pattern of the pulses. And so this would be sort of a holodoc kind of thing, you know? And, um, and so we started a project. We spun off a company from the rat lab called Pulse Tectonics. And Pulse Tectonics was uh, working on this, this um, a way to do this measurement. And we raised some money. And um, in the process, we... Um, uh, found something else. We noticed that in some of the patients, some of us, we were, were you know, using our measurement system on ourselves, there was a strange bump that would occur sometimes and not other times in the pulse. We say, hmm, what is that? Sometimes it's there and sometimes it's not there. And we finally figured out by doing, a, you know, some monitoring over a period of time that this had to do with we're hungry. When we're hungry, that bump appears. And when we're not hungry, it's not there. And, um, and we found, we said, well, what this is all about is we're actually measuring the shunting of blood to the stomach, uh, to the digestive system that is being basically stu- su- shut off. And uh, when you're, you're hungry, but, uh, but the demand is there. And then when you eat, you're basically releasing that into the stomach. 
And uh, we found that that, you know, that that was a correlation. And then we said, well, we wonder if we can determine with the pulse what you've eaten. This is fascinating. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and what you've eaten. Okay. Yeah. And so we started doing some experiments. And we said, okay, well, let's, let's, uh, this is all on ourselves, you know, um, and uh, let's, let's, uh, ta- let's do a diet of protein. Uh, let's do uh, uh, carbs and, uh, and whatever, you know, and, uh, and, and see if what, and fat. And let's see if there's any difference in the pulse. Sure enough, there's a difference in the pulse. We could tell by looking at the pulse what you'd eaten. And, uh, and basically what it was telling us is how the body reacts to what you've eaten in terms of, you know, the way it allocates blood supply. So, uh, we, the more we looked into this, we said, good grief, this is a bigger market than, uh, <laughs> than cardiovascular disease, you know, the diet, uh, the nutrition and diet market. So anyhow, we continued down this line. We had some, we had, again, have some patents. And uh, we're ready to raise our next round of money. We had it identified. And then the Chinese market shut down. Basically, the, the investment resources of China to the USA started drying up. I see. This is even before the current administration. I see. And so all of our money was going to come, uh, the, this money, this next tranche of funding was going to come from China. Because mm-hmm. they were the market. They were going to be where we introduced it because we thought, yeah, but we thought, well, why would China want this? Because they have the traditional Chinese medicine practitioners. And it would be more more open to Chinese yes. sort of sort of culture. Yes. Yeah. Not only that, the traditional Chinese medicine practitioners, of which there are about 100,000 of them, um, said, we want this. And the reason we want it is we have no way of documenting what we've done. You know, it's just one of those things we go feel the patient and give them some herbal medicine to make them better. And uh, this way we have a record of it. And not only that, we could give them this system to take home so that we see what happens during the day. So you could make it that cheaply then? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was going to be really the most important part of it was uh, was the database. I mean, that was the most valuable part of it. And so we would make these things for, you know, maybe 15 bucks kind of thing. Uh, and um, and it would you know it would uh, in, in quantity and then it would uh, communicate with the cloud and uh, and access this database and the machine algorithms and things like that and it spit back to you what uh, what was going on and what you needed to take in terms of herbal medicine. Now these are these are Chinese herbal medicine, which is different than what we get at the drugstore here in this country. Yes. Now the other thing, reason they wanted to do this is because they wanted to be legitimatized in Western medicine. Of course. Because they're looked upon as, you know, sort of, uh, you know, spooky medicine. And um, that was another reason for this. Well, I even know uh, that the chairman of our department has a son that's both a medical doctor and practices acupuncture. Oh, yeah. I know acupuncture has had the same sort of pushback. Yes, Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so... Anyhow, this uh, this guy, by the way, also practices ac- acupuncture, and we talked about that too, and, and how it's it's relevant in, in this situation. So, anyhow, that started the P- Pulse Tectonics Company with all these different variations. It's sitting there, ready to go once we can get the money. You know, we we're trying to raise, you know, like five million dollars to to take it to the next step, to where we can field a bunch of units and start building our database um, with that. So that is another spinoff that came out of the rat lab. Um, 
There is another one that uh, uh, that is sort of interesting. Uh, a colleague of mine, again, the guy that was uh, uh, I worked with on this X Prize, uh, who is a physician, MD, PhD, neurologist. Um, we were really interested again about vision and what's happening with the retina. And here in the rat lab, we took one of the bedrooms and we uh, converted it into a uh, chamber, a light isolation chamber to measure the light that comes out of the eyes. Out of the eyes. Yes. We know that photons go into the eyes. And of course, the, the quanta of energy is released in the retina and uh, using the Dobson molecules that send electrical signals eventually to the visual cortex. But we were looking, we looked at the structure of the optical pathways and we said, hmm, there's almost like a, U, uh, a U-turn there. And uh, we're wondering if there isn't a feed forward loop. So we put, um, we built this chamber. We put in some detectors, photon detectors, cool detectors, and we started measuring photons that come out of the eyes. Now, clearly there's not enough photons coming out of the eyes where you can see somebody in the dark, is there? No. No, this is what was called ultra-weak photon emission. And uh, so it is, uh, you have to use, uh, you know, ph- photomultipliers in order to, to count these, uh, these photons. But it's clear that there are photons that come out of the eyes, and these are in the visible spectrum. These are not, uh, you know, not a byproduct of, uh, of normal metabolism, infrared or whatever. Yes. So um, that is another area that we're continuing to explore because if there's something there, if this has something to do with what's going on in brain with brain chemistry, then we have a portal, potentially a um, diagnostic portal into the brain, uh, especially with people that may have uh, cognitive impairment, mild cognitive impairment, Alzheimer's, things like that. So again, this is a, one of those stumble upon kind of deals. And, um, but I could do it in a rat lab and I could do it cheaply and uh, not have to worry about going through the whole university system. And so that was another reason for having it. I can tell you some more stories. I, for example, I, I was hired by um, a company to be unnamed to actually build a virtual cockpit for them for a search, new search and rescue helicopter. Oh. And uh, so one of the bedrooms we converted into a helicopter simulator. And uh, this was a virtual cockpit for helicopters because the real problem with search and rescue is these pilots are flying in these awful conditions, weather conditions, and uh, they don't see. And we were going to provide a way for them to see and a way to hover, station keep, um, rescue people, things like that. So we started, uh, we built a simulator to test some of our ideas, just like I did at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and um, had uh, developed a whole new way of uh, providing a cockpit for helicopters. <laughs> so, so, uh, uh, so in the process of all of this, uh, my rats were getting all kinds of experience. Mm-hmm. And then they went on, the ones that, that went on from, from there, I, well, I, they, they, were, uh, they loved it. And then they used that as a stepping stone to get to responsible jobs in industry. Excellent, excellent. And several of them I'd, I'd send to Australia and New Zealand to work on their uh, graduate degrees and um, based upon the experience they did here. And so that's where you got the HIT labs at the University of Canterbury and the University of Tasmania, right? Well, yeah. I mean, one of the things, there, there's a story about the, the, the HIT lab, in, uh, uh, especially in New Zealand, 
um, what happened, of course, when uh, uh, I was uh, working in my office at the university and I got the call from a dean's office saying, there's a delegation here from New Zealand who would like to come see your lab. Uh-huh. And I said, oh, okay. Apparently they had, uh, I don't know, they'd found something online and they thought it was interesting. And so uh, they came and it, I found out that they were members that, that Seattle and Christchurch, New Zealand are sister cities. Oh. And they were up here as part of a sister cities delegation with the mayor and some university folks and the so-called Canterbury Development Corporation, which was their, basically their government incubator kind of thing to start companies in New Zealand. And so they show up in my lab and uh, I show them around, tell them what I'm doing. And, and uh, I spent off all these companies and we're doing this, you, this multidisciplinary, transdisciplinary activity that where we get generating all the patents, things like that. And they said, can we do that? Now, I th- at that point, I thought, if I play this right, <laughs> I'm going to get a free trip to New Zealand. New Zealand's beautiful, too. Yeah, it is. Yes. And so, um, and I'd been there when I was in the Air Force. I actually had worked uh, with the Royal New Zealand Air Force some. And, and as it turns out, one of my PhD students in electrical engineering, actually, Mark Billinghurst, was uh, about to finish uh, and graduate uh, in double uh, E. And uh, I introduced them to him. And uh, I was looking around for a job for this kid. So anyhow, I, uh, they, uh, they said, well, I maybe I told him maybe I should maybe I should go to New Zealand and check it out. And they said, Oh, would you would you come? I mean, we fly you down business class, bring your wife, you know, you can take some time off and and get around and things like that. And I said, Oh, maybe I'll do that. <laughs> yes. You know, the beaches in New Zealand rival those in Oregon. They're just beautiful. Oh, yeah. Well, as it turns out, um, when I got down there and they showed me around and uh, we had a blast just driving around the countryside and uh, they asked me, well, what do you think? I said, uh, well, maybe I should come back. I have a sabbatical coming up and I could spend, you know, six months here uh, taking a look and see what we can develop. And they, so they offered me an Erskine fellowship to come back and spend six months. And then they introduced me to the prime minister the deputy prime minister, all of the ministers, <laughs> and the government said, we're going to do this. And we were going to form uh, several entities. We we're going to form two entities, the HIT Lab New Zealand Research Center, hosted by the University of Canterbury, and the HIT Lab New Zealand Limited, a company owned by the university and by the University of Washington that would um, develop the technology once it happens in the research center. And let's remind listeners that HITLAB stands for Human Interface Technology. Right. So what happened? We started the lab. And oh, by the way, one of the things that had to happen is I needed to be in New Zealand every year from January to the end of March during the winter quarter. Oh, I'm so sorry. That's and, when it rains in Seattle, right? Uh, yeah, and other yeah, things. Yeah, you know, our joke used to be it's like living in a car wash during That's, that period. <laughs> pretty much. Yes. And so uh, the New Zealanders gave us a permanent residence visa. We bought a home, and we lived in New Zealand every year for three months um, during that period of time. And we uh, started the lab. It's booming. Um, it, uh, my student became the director. He stayed for 13, 12, 13 years. Now we have a new director. They have gobs of money, gobs of students, generating uh, the spinning off companies, and it's wonderful. 
Now, what happens is the the uh, you know, Aussies see this. Oz, you know, looks over the pond and says, "What are these Kiwis doing?" And um, and they came over and said, "Gosh, if the New Zealand people can do this, surely we can do it." Of course. So they wanted to start their own lab, Hit Lab, that would be a sister to the New Zealand lab and to to the Hit Lab at University of Washington. And so um, they did. They started one in Tasmania. And it didn't grow as fast, but another one of my PhD students in electrical engineering became involved in that one. <laughs> and my so, goodness. Yeah. So that's how it happened. So, Dr. Fernandez, we have been talking about a number of fascinating things, but there's still some things that uh, I'd like to talk to you about. Another one is AR Toolworks. Now, AR here stands for augmented reality. I believe that augmented reality was actually a term coined by Tom Cadell when he was at Boeing. But what is the AR Toolworks? Uh, what, what, what are you doing there? Okay, let me stop back a little bit. Um, when we were beginning the work in virtual reality, uh, in the Air Force, we really didn't call it that. We called it visual coupling systems. And uh, there was no differentiation between VR and AR. Now, the difference really is between VR is generally where you are completely immersed in a computer-generated environment. That's all you see is the computer generation of uh, images. AR, on the other hand, is where you see the real world, the physical world, but you're able to superimpose on top of the physical world um, images generated by the computer. Now, that can be done one of two ways. It can be done as a um, video-based virtual reality or augmented reality, and that's what Mm -hmm. the Pokemon Go was, uh, where indeed you um, were seeing a video scene of the outside world, but then you had the, the Pokemon figures on top of that or embedded in it. I remember that was a really big thing, and there were there were pictures of people walking off walking off cliffs and That's stuff right. while they were while they were doing their Pokemon Go That's stuff. That's right. Yeah. And then there there's another augmented reality where it is this, it's basically an optical combining. So you actually see through uh, you you see the outside world through a medium through which uh, you can it's transparent, but at the same time you see computer generated information. So you're actually not looking at a video of the real world, you're looking at the actual real world. So that's the difference between the two augmented realities, the video-based and the um, direct view or the see-through of virtual uh, augmented reality. So it turns out that the easier one to do, I mean, in the early days, we were with head-up displays and uh, most of our displays that we're using in the cockpit, our head-mounted displays were actually see-through. You can see the outside world and then um, uh, see the virtual information on top of the outside world in daylight. But at night, what we would do is basically all you'd see is the virtual world. So to us, it was really a a spectrum where we went through complete see-through to complete VR. And so it was never, we never differentiated between the two. But as um, the technology evolved over a period of time, there was this notion of the, the Tom Caudell. Indeed, a project that we were, did with Tom at Boeing was where we were looking at the wiring harnesses, how we could use augmented reality to help uh, manufacture wiring harnesses for the large body aircraft. 
So this this was the wiring sort of schematics for Boeing aircraft. Yes, very difficult to do this uh, when you the traditional way of just putting wires on top of a blueprint. Mm-hmm. But with augmented reality, you would see the uh, the loom that contained these pegs where you're going to stream the wires, and you see one wire, virtual wire, superimposed over that. And all you had to do is just take look at that one wire and string it through this particular set of uh, uh, wiring looms to get there. Um, it was a breakthrough. And that's what we called, uh, we started calling this augmented reality. Mm-hmm. And as to differentiate it from where you didn't see the outside world, it was all computer generated. So what happened um, in the um, uh, late 1990s, uh, I had a graduate student in, in conjunction with the Hit Lab New Zealand, Mark Billinghurst. He was a PhD student in electrical engineering. And we were playing around with how do we uh, provide a way to interact with virtual images? Because what we were doing at the time was we're uh, trying to use these hand controllers to reach out and grab things. But we became interested in how could we use objects as a means, tangible objects, as a means of doing this interaction. And we could use computer vision technology to actually track these tangible objects and have them interact with images. And then the idea came to mind, well, why don't we just put the images over the top of, of these, these objects? And so this became what we called, uh, what we st- began to call video-based augmented reality. And so what would happen is, let's say that you would, um, you would have these special glasses that you'd wear. You put on these glasses and they have a television camera uh, in the middle between the two eyes. And then what would happen is we'd display that image to the eyes. So basically what you have is a video view of the world. And then we take an object, for example, a piece of cardboard or a piece of paper that had a black square in the middle of this, and there would be a symbol in the middle of the black square. And when we, when the com- camera that we were wearing on our headset saw the black square, it started tracking it. And by looking at the edges of the black square, it could determine the pose or the orientation and position of that black square relative to the headset. And then what we said is, okay, there's a symbol inside of that black square. That meant something. And so we would recognize that symbol, a particular character, and that meant an object. We would extract that object from a library of three-dimensional objects, and we'd superpose it in the black square. So now it appeared that that three-dimensional object was like super glued to this card. And as you move the card around, it tracked perfectly. It was like it was really there, but it wasn't there. And this became the beginning of what we call uh, the AR toolkit. Mm-hmm. Oh, And uh, so what you can do is build, build them, build these objects. You know, objects can interact with each other. Uh, you can build a whole system. It's like Legos of this. Uh, uh, that's, you see the real world, but you see these virtual objects in the real world, depending upon where you place these tangible markers, these tangible card markers. So uh, in the uh, late 90s, we, uh, I think it was actually 98 or 99, we had an exhibit at, the, uh, um, at SIGGRAPH. Yes. In the Emerging Technologies um, section of SIGGRAPH, where we demonstrated this. And we actually had a memory game 
we had set out where you'd, you'd have two players who would be wearing these glasses and a big table, and then you'd have these cards that you would turn over. And let's say that you would turn over a card and you would see um, a spaceship. You see a flying saucer. And then uh, you'd, you'd uh, turn over another card and you'd see uh, a broom or something like that. And they didn't match. So you turn those back over and then you'd uh, turn, uh, uh, then you go around to playing this game and then you turn over a card and there's the, the um, flying saucer again. You turn over another card and there's an alien. And then you bring the two cards together. And the alien jumps into the flying saucer and starts flying <laughs> around the room. I see. Okay. And so it's the memory game, you know, only with a with a difference. And and so that's what we de- demonstrated at SIGGRAPH, and everybody just went ape over this. Yes. You know, this way of, of losing tangible markers as a means of manipulating computer-generated images that appear to be there on those markers. We built a, a thing, teleconferencing where you can actually flip over the cards and call a person and they appear on top of this card and you put them around your desk. So you're interacting with these people, you know, in, uh, uh, in 3d around your desk, little miniatures of these people. Uh-huh. And, uh, we were also, we had one big card that we made in our lab and when you walked in, if you had these glasses on is the millennium Falcon. So you see the real room, you see the real lab, the, but the millennium Falcon is sitting there. In the middle of it, you can walk around it and, and uh, the, the Star Wars Millennium Falcon. Anyhow, that got us started. And so we started this company. Uh, you, uh, we built the AR toolkit to University of Washington, and then we released it uh, open source, and um, we had 100,000 downloads. So is this, is this still available for open source? Yeah, it is. Do you, do you know the website off top of your head? It was through Vuforia for a while. I don't know what it is now, actually, what the latest one is. I'll have to let you know. Okay, thanks. And uh, so what happened was the we had all those downloads, and we're thinking, hmm, maybe we ought to start a company. And so um, we what we did was we, um, re, we, we started a company called AR Toolworks, Inc. Uh, the idea, we were going to take the open source thing and rewrite it and support it, sort of like Unix and Linux and so forth. And um, so we, we did that and uh, started this company. It was the very first augmented reality company. It started in uh, 2001 and existed uh, until about 2015 uh, when we sold it to Dacry. And, um, and then Dacry worked on it for a while and then Dacry went belly up. <laughs> but, oh, you no. still, but you can still get it, I guess. But, okay. you know, this has become the foundation for just so many other companies have taken this and built other other approaches for doing this kind of thing. Uh, same kind of thing. Uh, matter of fact, there's one company that spun off from my hit lab in New Zealand um, called Quiver. And then you can Quiver. go online, Quiver Vision. Go online, Quiver Vision, and uh, you download these little, um, it looks like a coloring book. And what you do is you um, can print out these this coloring book, and then you you have your kids color those with crayons, mm-hmm. and then you put take your phone or a VR device, and you look at that uh, that page that you've colored, and uh, now it pops into life. That's texture mapped. The objects are texture mapped with what you colored on that two dimension onto a three dimensional figure. And they do various things. They play games and things like that. And uh, that's called Quiver Vision. <laughs> that's, that is so interesting. 
I got to ask you, I got to ask you now about your NSF project that we talked about offline. Yes. That sounds so incredible. Well, what happened in the early days, again, when I was working on virtual reality, we found that it was pretty amazing what was happening in the far periphery. That indeed, we were taking in lots of information from the peripheral retina that we weren't necessarily seeing. Uh-huh. Um, and so we, when I did finally come to the university, uh, we had a project that was funded by Eastman Kodak. And Eastman Kodak was trying to build, and based upon a, uh, basically a plan that I gave them, what was called a world vision system. And a world vision system, I, I sort of convinced them to do this because, you know, the, what, what Eastman Kodak is, I convinced them. I think I was trying to convince them. I gave them a, a, a keynote address at their award ceremony, their annual award ceremony. And the theme of my talk was that, that Kodak is really, this is when Kodak still existed. Yes. That actually you guys are actually in the transportation business and not in the image business. Why are you in the transportation business? Okay. Let's say, I'm sorry for this story. It's going to be, take a little bit. That's fine. So here we have, let's say that uh, we have this amazing Kodak technology, film technology. And, uh, so let's say you're taking your family for a visit to the Grand Canyon. And so you're driving up to the Grand Canyon. You stop in the parking lot, park your car. Uh, you go outside and to the rim of the Grand Canyon. You whip out your camera. You, uh, it has Kodak film in it. And then uh, you take these photographs. And then you go back home and turn in your uh, roll of film to your drugstore. This is when, film, when cameras still had film. And then you get your prints back. And then you look at the print and you think, hmm, it's not the same as being there. And you show it to your friends and you tell them, well, you just sort of need to be there. And I said, that's the business you're in. What's your business is you're taking our eyes to another place in another time. The problem is the vehicle you've built to take our eyes to another place in another time has really small windows. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. And what you need to do is build a transportation system that lets you to open the door, walk outside, and be there. And be there again and again and again, and take your friends so they can be there. And what you need is a world vision system. And then what I did was I outlined a whole program for them to build the world vision system. I was doing this just for fun, you know, just to give a talk. And, uh, I'd outline the world, the world um, acquisition system, the world synthesis system, the world delivery system, the networking, all of that in this talk. Well, after I finished, this executive vice president from Eastman Kodak comes up to me and says, uh, have you written this down? And I said, not really. I mean, I was just doing it for this talk. <laughs> he said, would you mind putting together concept paper for us on this world vision system? And I said, oh, sure, I'll be happy to do that. So I did and sent it to them, and they started a $20 million program. And they awarded the University of Washington, the HIT Lab, the largest project that was ever done with a university. Now, who was this? Who was the sponsoring organization again? Eastman Kodak. Oh, that was Eastman Kodak. I see. Okay. And, um, and so we started working. And the first question they want us to ask, wanted to ask us is, well, how good does it have to be that you feel like you're there? And so we started doing research on this. Okay, that's how good does this picture have to be? 
And we started simulating various devices that would give you wide field of view, high resolution, things like that. But the problem is, how do you measure it? What is the dependent variable? Because what we'd used up to this time is all subjective. You say, do you feel like you're there on a scale from one to 10? Do you feel, uh, you feel present? Do you feel immersed? All this. And of course, this variability all over the place in this subjective assessment. And we realized that we need an objective assessment for this. So we came up with this scheme of let's measure postural stability. Let's measure how we can affect the balance of a person as a function of how big a picture is and whether it moves and what uh, is the resolution of it, things like that. Because this is a direct connection to basically the central nervous system through the postural stability mechanism from our eyes. So that's what we did. We built a posture platform. People would stand on it. They're in a harness because we knock them off their feet. Um, and uh, we would display these different fields of view to them up to 180 degrees. And sure enough, what happened is as we increased field of view, the effect kept increasing, which meant that we had more and more presence with the wider field of view that we gave them. Hmm. But our instrumentation was limited to a 180 degree picture because we're using a, a rear projection hemisphere. We're projecting on this for our studies. And I decided, you know, we're going to have to eventually go back and extend the field of view because it's still going up. It hadn't asymptoted in terms of the effect. Um, I thought it would asymptote by that based upon the work I'd done in the Air Force, but it didn't. Mm -hmm. So here recently, I went back to visit this again. I'm really intrigued what's going on with the peripheral retina, especially since recent research shows that the retina extends way beyond that 180 degrees. And indeed, at the rim of the retina, in an area called the aura serrata, there is a rich ring of cone receptors, which gives us a highly detailed color vision, just right on the rim of the retina. So why is it there? Because what happens is the detectability, the limit of detectability is really around um, 100 degrees off axis, which is 200 degrees. We were able to only go in our research with 180. But well, I was interested in what happened beyond that. This NSF grant was to help me explore that. And so we started doing the research to say, okay, what is the limit of detectability? And so we extended the range out to where we can go all the way out to 240 degrees field of view. And we found that pretty much around 101 degrees is where people stop seeing visual images. So at 100 degrees eccentricity, which is one axis, you add that together to about 200 degrees is when is the limit of detectability. So if you go beyond that toward the rear, you don't see it anymore, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And we start from the rear and go front, that's when you start seeing it again. So there's a little band there um, of the limits of detectability. We said, okay, that's interesting. What if we display something beyond that, the limit of detectability? Because the rim of the retina is way beyond that. Really? Okay. Okay. And so what we did, we did these experiments where we display different objects in the far periphery beyond this limit and asked the subjects to identify what object we presented. They said, but I can't see it. We said, that's okay. 
tell us what you think it is. And they get it right. Seriously? Yes. That's amazing. So this is what is called perception without awareness. Now, it's obvious that that this information is being processed in the brain somehow. Uh, But it's not leveled, uh, not in our consciousness. Now, it's probably processed in other ways, but we believe, and this is where we're continuing to do our work, that this may be a direct channel to some of the subconscious and to the limbic system and to the emotional state and actually help you establish where you are. Now, I'm not familiar with the system that you talked about. Limbic. 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 System. Limbic system. This is sort of the emotional side of people. And this is, we're particularly interested in that because that's where stress comes in and pay, perhaps pain, things like that. So it's conceivable that we can build devices that are inconspicuous, display devices that are inconspicuous, that only display information to the far peripheral retina that you don't realize that are even there that can help heal you. That's incredible, Tom. Yeah. So that's what we're continuing to do in the um, in what we call the Ben Lab, which uh, Benjamin Hall at the university, and um, with an NSF sponsorship. That is really amazing stuff. And you're going to be doing experiments in this, I guess, we with are. psychologists. And- oh yes, yeah. Goodness, that's incredible. <laughs> well, let me let me ask you one final question about what do you think the future of VR is going to be like? We see stuff in movies like in The Matrix where there's total immersion. You have no idea you're in a virtual reality world. I don't see that ever happening, but uh, Elon Musk just came out with something where he sticks wires in your, your brain. I've decided that he's not going to stick any wires in my <laughs> brain because I think it's kind of wacko stuff, but uh, what do you see the future of the uh, of the technical reach of virtual reality insofar as total immersion? Well, I believe that uh, indeed uh, we are going to stick wires in the brain, but they're already there. We're born with them. It's called the optic nerve. Uh-huh. We have the most amazing opti- optical coupling to the brain that you can imagine. We also have an amazing coupling of a chemical sensor to the brain which is already there, which is the olfactory bulb. We have the same, we have gazillions of sensors in our skin, the largest organ of the body. It's already there. The interface is there. So what we need to do is just figure out a way to stimulate those sensory end organs that provide us this picture. We don't have to put wires into the brain. It's already there. And so what we need to do is just figure out a way to do the optical coupling. And that's what we're talking about with these virtual visual displays, virtual acoustic displays, and virtual olfactory and and whatever, you know, the different senses. Um, So I think that what will happen is we will realize that that uh, is a way to go. Now, let me back off a little bit. It's easy to get intoxicated by all this stuff. Mm -hmm. It's easy to get intoxicated about virtual reality because you've had the experience. You put the headset on. And by the way, that's a sacred moment. The first time you put a headset on a person and they experience VR for the first time, yes. it's sort of a, it's a holy moment because they'll never be the same after that. You re- it's like remembering where you were when Kennedy was shot that's or right. when the space shuttle exploded that's or right. all of those other things. Yeah. And that's what we found over the years and especially all the educational projects we've done. I've done 10 different um, projects with kids in education using VR. 
Mm-hmm. It's amazing. What we found is the kids that were failing caught up with the smart kids and we test them a year later and they were better. And it all has to do with awakening of the spatial memory. And that's what VR does. Once you've been in a virtual world, you never forget it. It's just like you were talking about. And yes. so it's a very powerful meeting. We're playing with fire and, um, and we're unleashing enormous power in terms of the ability to influence people. Because we're putting these images in their head that will never go away. And we're doing that by putting them in a place. We're putting places in people by putting people in places. And so we have to be responsible for that. And that's one of the reasons why I did the Virtual World Society. Is because we need to not go to the default of building games of violence that people will play in VR. We need to be using VR for education. Tell us about the society. It is a society that you founded, right? And this is its mission? Yes. The the Virtual World Society mission is really to do three things. One is to unlock intelligence, link minds, and lift hearts. And it's all for humanitarian applications of virtual reality in education, in medicine, in design, to lift mankind. Whereas the default of industry is to tear in, tear us down by practicing killing people. And if you kill a person in VR, it's different than killing a person on a computer screen because you're up close and personal. And when you blow out their brains, it's different. And what happens as a result of that is you either have nightmares or you get numb. And um, so what I'm trying to do in the virtual world society is all these projects that show the positive aspects of what we can do with virtual reality in education, building what we call a learning living room. This is where we have thousands of families around the world who are basically field laboratories that are using VR for educating their families, as well as coupling with the other families that are doing this. You're right. I can see that breaking down social barriers. Yes. And it's amazing and generating empathy. I mean, when you go and, and uh, New York Times has done this. You know, when they, they, if you're a subscriber of the New York Times, you, you uh, received in the mail this Google Cardboard. And uh, you, you basically assemble this and put your phone in it, your smartphone, and then you can download uh, these different uh, experiences. One of them was a food drop in Africa. And here you are standing on this field with all these other people from a village waiting for the the C-130 to fly over and drop food. Wow, that changes your life. You know, you'll always remember it. You'll see the faces of those people, what happened when they rushed to the packages, and you're there in the middle of it. And this is is transformative in terms of generating empathy and what is going to be the future of news and uh, because you're going to be there. So I think that Again, the Virtual World Society, we're just a fledgling uh, society. We have about 1,200 members now. But these people are really keen on doing humanitarian things. They want to build these worlds that educate and lift. And, um, I mean, we're doing work with the the Make-A-Wish Foundation. We're Mm -hmm. uh, uh, doing uh, things for helping communities who have a problem of social unrest uh, with people who are isolated because they have dementia or because they're locked into a nursing home, or in a hospital. And so uh, this is the area where there's a huge market for VR. I'm trying to point the way to industry say, hey guys, there's a whole market out here. 
we don't have to default to games of violence. Where would you go to find out more about the Virtual World Society? And can anybody join? You bet. And you can join for free. So you just go online to www.virtualworldsociety.org. And their amazing newsletter uh, about what we're doing and um, and a community. Uh, we're, we've built a, a platform called We Make Reality for kids who want or people who want to be involved in building these worlds and so forth. Excellent. We'll we'll put a link to that on, on the podcast notes. So I guess virtual reality is like any technical tool. It's not good or bad. It's how you use it. Absolutely. And that's that's why we need as a civilization to be responsible for these tools. It's not going to replace what's out there now. I mean, it's, it's just going to be just like television didn't replace radio. And, uh, and uh, so it's, it is just another tool in our arsenal to help us grow and progress and make the world a better place. Oh, Dr. Thomas Furness, what a wonderful note to end on. Uh, you've led a full and rewarding career in virtual reality, being one of the big pioneers and also leading innovations in it. And you got to have a good feeling about living a life like that. Congratulations, sir. That's really, really good stuff. Thank you. I'm a lucky guy. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, when when you're able to use the gifts that God has given you for the good of mankind, it's uh, it's a good life. And also, Dr. Ferdes and I, we share something in common. Our wives won't let us retire. Right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. You were on a trial retirement and your wife said, nope, you can't do that. Yep. So yeah, you got to keep on, uh, you got to keep on working. I, w- I was talking to a friend of mine at church and he said, nowhere in the Bible do they mention that people retire. That's right. <laughs> and I I, I I told my son, of course, I told my son that he was happy to hear that, but I did say that it does talk about kids taking care of their parents when they get old. So yeah. maybe maybe that will kick in somewhere. Well, it's, it's better to wear out than to rust out, right? Exactly, exactly. We've been talking to Dr. Tom Furness at the University of Washington. He's a professor there, an innovator in virtual reality and augmented reality, and is sometimes dubbed the grandfather of virtual reality. And Tom, it's been a delight to talk to you. Same here. Thank you, Bob. Okay, so until next time, be a good cheer. This has been Mind Matters News with your host, Robert J. Marks. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.